What's the password? <laughs> Welcome to the Game Master Speakeasy. Brought to you by the record button. Howdy, and welcome to the Game Master Speakeasy. Uh, welcome. Come on in out of the uh, whatever yeah, rain. Come on out of the rain. Saddle up to the bar. Today's bartender is named Nero, and Nero can serve you, if you are of the appropriate age, an alcoholic beverage, because this is a speakeasy. Specifically, the Game Master Speakeasy, where a couple of Game Masters like to hang out and chit-chat about our favorite pastime, tabletop role-playing games. I am but one of your hosts, Cody. And I'm Lance. Uh, Lance, how's your day going? My day's going pretty well. Uh, I've got a good beer in front of me. It's uh, delicious. Yeah, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Absolutely. I really I really like this. I'm, 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 I'm I've got FOMO about this beer. I'm going to have to get some more of it. <laughs> yeah, well, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go, get some, <laughs> I'm gonna go take some home because yeah. this is really good. Absolutely. Um, but that said, uh, for those of you that are just joining us, uh, what is this, episode 14, I think? For those of you who are starting with episode 14 somehow, we are a couple of dudes from the Midwest who like to play tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, Traveler, Call of Cthulhu, things like that, where we roll dice and make-believe. And it's a <laughs> lot of fun, because what else are you going to do when you're landlocked? That's true. <laughs> Got no um, beach. We've got a couple things in news. We're going to talk about the beer. And we today's open segment, I want to talk about uh, structuring quests and how you do that in a couple of different genres. Right. But before we get there, the couple pieces of news I have, we're going to start with something that I forgot to talk about last episode, which this is a big deal for some people. I have never read the novels, but there is a series of Dungeons and Dragons novels called... Uh, Dragonlance. Have you ever heard this word before? I have heard of it, yes. I've never read it. Okay, so Dragonlance, this uh, is a series of Dungeons & Dragons novels, very famous among the D&D community. Uh, I'll pretty much, uh, I don't know, based on having, I've read the intro for the uh, the Dark Elf trilogy for Dritz, mm -hmm. but I have never read any Dragonlance, and when people talk about them, I'd say it's like about equivalent hype levels from people that are grognards. Uh, grognards being like, you know, people that have been around for a really long time and are set in their ways <laughs> in terms of uh, RPGs. But Dragonlance is a setting. So much like how Forgotten Realms uh, is where the Dark Elf trilogy take place, Dragonlance is its own setting. See, and I think that's why I've heard of it. Less about the novels, but I've heard about the setting. Yeah, it's one of the D&D settings because uh, the big, the, like, the, I think there's, what, five big ones that I can name off the top of my head. We've only ever played in... Uh, the Forgotten Realms, but there's also uh, Dragonlance, there's Dark Sun, there's Eberron, uh, and there's Greyhawk. Um, how many was that? Like four. Yeah, okay. Uh, Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, uh, Dark Sun, Eberron, Greyhawk. There you go, five. Okay, I, five. I named yeah. five. I think that's the, the big five right there. The, that Those are the big five settings for Dungeons and & Dragons. And, you know, they all have their different... Uh, idiosyncrasies, whether it be, oh, this is how magic works in this one, or uh, this is, these are the different types of ancestries. There's uh, an infamous race of uh, small beings called Kender, which exist in the Dragonlance setting. Uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, those of you who are big fans of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition are probably familiar with something called Unearthed Arcana, which is essentially a uh, beta test of future content. I always love that stuff. Wizards of the Coast, uh, much much like how Paizo does public playtests, uh, they put out information ahead of time, and people can take a survey and provide feedback on what they do and don't like about it. And it's almost always things that they will probably include in a future book. And they have put out an Unearthed Arcana, which I forgot to mention this last episode, uh, pretty much just in regards to Dragonlance stuff. So let that aforementioned ancestry, the Kender, uh, rules for playing uh, Kender player characters are included, uh, among other things, so that you can start to get a feel on how a Dragonlance setting will behave in 5th um, in edition. And I, anyone who is experienced in this can correct me in the comments below if I'm wrong about this, but I think there actually is, uh, whether it be, uh, I don't know if it's AD&D or D&D 3.5 or whatever, but I think there's a point where uh, Dragonlance as a setting is kind of also an adventure module, where unlike most games, 
you play th- as the characters in the novels. Okay. Like the char- I I want to say, and I've never. I'm not a. I'm going to hedge my bets here and say I've never done an actual research into this, but I've always been given the impression from what I've read about it that you're kind of like there is an option for playing in that setting where you're playing through the novels. That's interesting. Yeah, where where the characters have kind of mm-hmm. like pregens, I want to say, or at least there's a version of that out there somewhere. See, that's 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 not. I think that the upcoming Cowboy Bebop game is also like that, where they're going to have stats for the players to play as hmm. Mike and Jet and well, Faye. That's, uh, I mean, that's kind of what, what um, Pinnacle did with the um, dime novels for Deadlands. Like, oh, each, of okay. the, each of those those books... I assume it, dime novels were like mini-adventures? Yeah, kind of. Okay. Well, like the Worms one we talked about a couple episodes ago that's was right, with was, was, uh, was a dime novel. And basically what the dime novels are is the front half of it is actually a small, short short story, basically. It's not like a whole novel. It is a short story of, of what that adventure entails. And it is usually played through by, like, the titular... Deadlands character Ronan Lynch, the the Harold Gunslinger, sometimes Hank Ketchum, absolute badass Ronan yep. Lynch, and sometimes the Texas Ranger Hank Ketchum, like ta- like has, has a part in the whole thing. <laughs> I'm but sorry, I mean, that always gets me that yeah. there's a a ranger, like a guy who would apprehend criminals, and his name's Lynch. Hank Ketchum. Ketchum. Yep, like he's Ash's uncle yeah, or something. Say, no relation to the Pokemon dude. Um, <laughs> but like it, so the so as a game master, you'll read through the dime novels, and what I always do is if after the players ran it, I would let them read the dime novels. Oh, just to get not, all the not beforehand because that would spoil the entire adventure. Because right. the back half of that book, then, or the back third of it, depending on how much space they needed to make it a thing, was uh, was the actual adventure that that dime novel had just been through. That sounds a lot of fun. I might, I might like. I want to borrow those. I've got. Well, all no, no, of no. Them. I mean, like, I might steal that idea and write like a short story. Oh, and then, and t- then run an adventure I mean, based on the short story, and then let you guys read it. The short story. That'd That'd be, cool. That sounds like a lot of fun to flex, like your, you know, your writing, writing muscles. muscles. Yeah. yeah. Jinx. <laughs> you owe me uh, a coke. From now on, every time we say the same thing at the same time, we're going to drink. I just made that rule up right now, so here we go. You're only doing that because you really like this. Beer. I really like this beer. <laughs> all right. Um, no, no, that's a great idea, actually. I, because uh, we we never played through any of the dime novels oh. when I was playing Deadlands. I don't think we did. Did we? We didn't do Night Train or anything with you. Nope, I have. I, I have never played Night Train, Worms. Uh, I assume the Tick one is a dime um, novel, or no? I don't think there was any with the with the the Prairie Ticks. Okay, I'd have to look through the the collection of them. I mean, I basically have I basically have every Deadlands book in existence. Yeah, yeah. Well, except the, for the, the classic, ones. all the classic stuff. Yeah, yeah. Savage Worlds is. Savage Worlds. A lot of people I, I like do, Savage Worlds. I do. Well, I do have the, the Savage Worlds Deadlands core book. I just don't have a lot of the supplements to it. Because oh, yeah. we, we just really haven't played a lot of Deadlands. As someone who likes uh, the randomness of drawing the cards mm. and the more crunchy rules. I, I do. I, 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 I do like Classic more. I prefer Classic. I, but that could be... Sorry, that, we, could be we could be Deadlands Grognards, <laughs> I think, might be the case. <laughs> because might... the, Savage, the Savage Worlds one is uh, a lot more popular. Yeah, it is. But... I, I like classic better, but yeah, the, the dime novels was kind of the same, the similar thing you're talking about Dragonlance in the sense that they they novelized if if tiny short story novels, um, the adventures, and then also gave you the actual material to play through with your characters, which was a pretty cool feature. Nice. Also, this was not planned, but that segues right into the next news topic. Nice. So, <laughs> speaking of novels, <laughs> um, well, not that there isn't already multiple movies and a comic and other stuff about it, but you may have heard of, and we've talked about it before, Alien, as in the Alien franchise and how Free League Publishing publishes the uh, actual licensed Alien RPG. But now, uh, I think by the time this episode airs, it'll be out uh there is going to be a book called Alien Colony War, uh, based on Alien, but based on Alien, based on the Alien game by Free League Publishing. Okay. And that comes out, I want to say, uh, according to the Amazon link I've got right here, it comes out April 19th. So it's it's a novel based on the game based that is on based on the, the movie. movie series. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah, yeah. I'm following, not, the, yeah. by, following uh, the By thread. an author named David Barnett. It is an original novel, but it's called Alien Colony War, and it it, it might be similar. Where um, perhaps, and I don't, I, you know, you could read this novel and then run an Alien RPG adventure based off of it, which sounds like a lot of fun. But for those who like Alien or the Alien game, just keep your eyes peeled uh, because this is close enough. Anytime there's fictionalization or novelization of game-related content, I'm probably going to talk about it. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, reading and 
Like, I feel like most people that do tabletop games do some amount of reading. Speaking of reading, uh, there, did you know there was once upon a time a, uh, a, uh, I want to say a Wheel of, you know, you're familiar with the Wheel of Time. I mean, I've never read it, nor have I seen the show, but I am familiar with, with its, its existence. existence. Yes. A- apparently one time there was a Wheel of Time uh, tabletop, too. I think most things that have become popular enough, especially in the kind of fantasy genre end up finding their way into the tabletop world. It's pretty easy to use a more generic system. Well, not, I, I don't want people to get the idea, for those that are unfamiliar with more generic systems, that generic is a bad word, because it's Mm-mm. not. There are, a, a system can be quote-unquote generic and fill a really good void. Typically, typically, when we refer to a generic system, we're talking about a system that has a wide enough usage that you could use it for a lot of different kinds of settings like, or a lot of like different like GURPS or yeah. Fate or things or Our, Genesis or things uh, like that uh, Savage Worlds but I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure yeah, Savage Worlds by design <laughs> I'm pretty sure like for example the Dresden Files has an RPG and I think it's based on the Fate system uh, let's see oh alright so that's that's it for Alien uh, Colony War but I am going to rant now alright um, go ahead so I we talked about last episode how there is WizKids Frameworks, which is a line of on-sprue polystyrene plastic miniatures, and I would like to talk about the price point. Uh, I was unable to through my... uh, I didn't think about it until after they're already sold out and there's no back order. I went to my local guy, uh, my local comic book store, my friendly local game shop, and asked, hey... Can you get me any of these WizKids frameworks? I just like the box of orcs. And this is me saying this before having done any research at all into the subject. I was just like, oh, can you get me the box of orcs? I'd like to see the quality of the miniatures. I didn't know the price point. I had not looked up what the other options were. I just knew there was a box of orcs. And honestly, I like to paint orcs. I think orcs are one of my favorite, like... Humanoid monster. It's my one of my favorite fantasy miniature to paint is orcs. Um, it's it's I'd say one of my best pieces uh, for my mid-level novice accomplishment is a cool orc. He's like jumping in midair with a big great axe. But anyway, WizKids, for the purposes of officially licensed D and D miniatures, I, I believe there's a Beholder as well. Uh, I think there's a Baylor. A Baylor being a big, scary demon, totally not a ripoff of the Bal- Balrog. <laughs> and by that, I mean it is a ripoff of the Balrog until the uh, Tolkien people came after TSR back in the 80s or 70s or whatever. But uh, I didn't know anything about it, couldn't get a hold of one. And then I saw a video uh, on YouTube by uh, Goobertown Hobbies. is a miniature painting-themed YouTube channel, which I watch pretty much. Uh, I'll, every video that comes Unboxing out. Unboxing video? It was Basically. essentially a review of the uh, WizKids frameworks. Okay. And uh, Goobertown Hobbies is a very chill dude. He's very cool, understanding, and patient. Uh, but me, on the other hand, I'm going to get angry about this. Because <laughs> this box of orcs, the price per model is more than Games Workshop's orcs. I know the look on. I don't know if you're familiar with Games Workshop, but Games Workshop is the company that makes uh, Warhammer, Age of Sigmar, Warhammer Fantasy, and Warhammer Forty Thousand. They have incredibly high quality miniatures that are incredibly expensive. That are well, they are on the higher side of cost. And don't get me wrong, they have an entire team of talented artists behind that plastic. But just the amount of money per orc that you get in the WizKids box. I like how much I'm, was it makes, it per mini? Okay, so take, roughly there are seven orcs in that box. The sprues, uh, you know, we're gonna have the description of the vid of Goobertown Hobbies review video below. So if you want to go, if you want more information, he ha- he covers it in greater detail. But I'll sum it up. Uh, I'll summarize it here. There are seven orcs in that box, right? On sprue, and I think uh, most of them have like two different options for head and arm. Mm -hmm. However, there's only five different orcs. Two of them are repeats in the box. And it costs $50. Holy crap. So that's like $7 in some sense per Per orc. Okay? So, you know, you think about a 28 millimeter scale orc. Uh, Viewers at home, if you're familiar with miniatures, just think about your standard orc miniature that you are, that you have seen. All right, now think about how a kobold exists as being shorter than an orc. Yeah, less right? plastic. And don't get me wrong, in your overhead, the plastic is uh, negligible compared to the cost of hiring your talent mm-hmm. to do the designs and all that fun stuff. Yeah. But 
there are seven kobolds for $50 in the WizKids Frameworks line. <laughs> you get a box of seven sprues of kobolds for $50, seven kobolds. Let that sink in. The same price as seven orcs. They're almost like half the height. Well, and you know, here's the thing. I don't, like in a lot of ways, I don't know how companies are going to be able to keep doing that with 3D printing as it becomes more popular because you, you've done it before. You can go out and get on subscription services where you will get 80-some minis for 15 bucks. Oh, yeah. Like, the, if the, you can print them, the STL files. The STL files. And, and you, you, don't, can, you don't get physical minis. No, you but, get the STL files to print at home. But but think about this for a minute. If you're the kind of game master that wants to make... Sh- like, you don't want to use tokens. You really want to, like, like, lean heavily into the imagery. So you want to be able to have miniatures for every character on a battle map. Okay, it's it is at that point, when you're looking at costs like those these WizKids costs... You would be better off to go buy a resin printer oh, yeah. for a couple of hundred bucks, and then to to get subscription services to a, or just even to get the, the subscriptions right away. Just monitor some of these subscription services. That's and what just, I do. And just yeah. wait. Oh, next month they've got a, a an orc collection coming out. Cool. I'm gonna sub this month for fifteen bucks. I'm gonna get orcs. I'm gonna get orc vehicles and or weapons and terrain. And you're gonna get orc tents, war riders. Yeah, war yeah. riders. And oh, it's fifteen dollars. I, I have a laundry list of my favorite uh, STL Patreons. And if anyone's interested, and I could, you know, we, let us know. I, we'll, we, we can we'll, let you let you in on that. But I mean, I've got a few of them. You know, oh, yeah. the, you know, the, and, and stuff like Arch that. Villain Games, Lord of the Print, Titan Forge, yeah. Arms and Guild. You know, and and I mean, if you're talking long-term investment, at that point, you're, you're better off to buy a 3D printer. Because to be honest with you, operating a 3D printer is not that expensive. I mean, you're looking at what thirty to fifty cents a mini, probably. Oh yeah. If you're using high in, quality in the resin. Cost of resin. Now, if you're going to talk about effort, there is effort to learn how to work the machine, mm-hmm. make sure it's calibrated, make sure you're not grinding your plate into the yeah. LCD screen. But it's not that bad. I mean, I, I've, 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 been, I've managed to learn to operate two separate 3D printers effectively yeah. in very little time. You can get YouTube videos that teach you how to calibrate these things. And to be honest with you, the resin printers are easier to calibrate than the yeah. filament ones. There are hero miniatures, which are pretty cool and have a lot of options, and they're about 15 bucks, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot more acceptable compared to the kobolds. Because if you look at, like, commander units mm-hmm. in games in the Games Workshop line, they're some really of those commanders, detailed, some really of those neat ga- looking dudes. Yeah, oh yeah, some of those commanders can be, like, 20, 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. So for the hero characters, it seems pretty worth it. And in, in that link, you go watch Coopertown Hobby's video, he'll say the same thing. Yeah. The heroes are worth it. The seven kobolds for 50 bucks... Not worth it. So I'm, I'm kind of curious if the price point will continue. Well, let's see. Anyway, if we could keep going about this for the remainder of the episode, but we have other stuff to talk about, right? Absolutely. I want to get to this delicious beer. Why don't you tell us what we're drinking today? Just, just so you know, he was hugging the bottle earlier. I, I, you, uh, don't, you don't need to tell them that. Uh, sure, sure I do. <laughs> okay, so what we are drinking today is a limited release... Boulevard Chocolate Ale. Now, Boulevard Brewing is out of Kansas City. I've been to the, the brewery. Me and my wife went and toured the place. The tour is worth it. Um, but this is a legitimate chocolate ale. And it is good. It is really good. The, the, the beer, being an ale, is a little bit milder. The chocolate flavors come in real, real well. And unlike a lot of stouts, and we all know if you've been paying attention that I'm a big fan of stouts, um, because this is just a chocolate ale, the chocolate comes out really well. There's there's not like there's not the coffee notes in there that are kind of helping to to push it along because it doesn't need it. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the chocolate flavor on top of the ale is just good. Well, and and I because of because of tabletop games, I have done a little bit of research into recently how beer is made, mm-hmm. and you know they malt the grain. Yep. Right. So be- between the chocolate and the malting of the ingredients, it tastes like a chocolate malt. It kind of does. It does. I, 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 you drink this beer, it tastes like the the ale version mm. of a chocolate malt straight out of the bottle. It's amazing. It's like it's like uh like the the hard uh, the hard milkshakes at Zombie Burger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, if you, oh man, if, if if there by some virtue, uh, any any of you tabletop nerds that work at Boulevard Brewing hear this podcast, <laughs> which this... is a very small chance at the current <laughs> level of our popularity. Uh, this Please. shouldn't be a limited release. This I should be this a year-round beer. Year round. Yeah. <laughs> or at least guarantee it every cold season. Yeah, right? no like, doubt. I want to know that this is coming back. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've even got the producers drinking this right now. Yeah, we, we're, we're all sitting here drinking this. And yeah, it's... They, they don't always drink beer with us, but they're, they're <laughs> enjoying it. Uh, ideally, 
if we love it this much, other people will too, and make such demands. Yeah, absolutely. Get you some of this. So yeah, saddle up to the bar and have uh, have Nero, today's bartender, get you a chocolate ale from Boulevard Brewing. If you are not of the appropriate drinking age, that's okay. It'll happen someday. Don't rush into it. I mean, take your time. It'll it'll happen. Uh, now let's talk about the. Uh, I want I want to talk to you today and get your opinion, and then share those opinions with our lovely viewers about making quests okay and kind of how to fit different types of quests into different genres we can talk about some sci-fi stuff too maybe but i probably primarily want to focus on the objectives that you put in front of your players for different sub-genres of fantasy okay so for starters let's talk about the fact that there are different sub-genres of fan re of of fantasy and kind of um what that means and examples of them. So let's start with high fantasy. When I say high fantasy, what do you think of? I think very high levels of magic, very, very over the top as far as the fantasy elements. I mean, you're going to have, you know, ley lines where magic shoots out of the ground. Dragons are going to be not only a, a relatively common thing, an incredibly well-known thing. Like people the world over in a high fantasy setting know that dragons exist and fear them. Right. Uh, so I will the 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 ultimate example in literary works uh, literary works of high fantasy is the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And uh, another important thing to note about uh, high fantasy is that in terms of fiction, it usually involves a grand quest where the a world journey. is in trouble. A journey. There's a journey, if you will. But usually in high fantasy, you've got your whether or not magic is prevalent. Because, you know, in, in Lord of the Rings, there's what? I don't know, five wizards? Yeah. Or something like that? Ma magic is prevalent in the sense that people know what it is, but it's yeah. not prevalent in the sense that everybody can do it. Right. Whereas in Forgotten Realms, you've got... Um, half of the classes are no, magic. Producing. Maybe more than half of them yeah. are magically active. Yeah, there's magically... Mm -hmm. yeah, there's so many... You've got entire academies and huge mm -hmm. metropolises of of, ma of magi yep. uh, doing all sorts of crazy stuff with magic. Eberron is incredibly high magic where you're, every schmo on the street knows like a cantrip or two, practically. <laughs> um, but basically the difference between high... F the, the two big ones are high fantasy and swords and sorcery. And the big difference is kind of the scale of the story that you're telling. So in high fantasy, you're running your big critical role campaign of season one where you've got to save the world. Mm -hmm. now, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know the story of seasons two and three. Uh, season uh, three is currently I airing. I haven't but watched season I'm just two using it as an example. High fantasy means high stakes. Mm -hmm. If you If the player heroes fail, bad things are going to happen. We didn't talk about uh, recent happenings, oh, which, is, didn't, which didn't is incredibly relevant to high fantasy. That's true. That that was the that was the thing we were going to talk about because, is our high fantasy campaign. Yeah, the Victor Finder campaign, which we're using Pathfinder Two for. Why don't you tell me from your perspective what happened in the last session of Pathfinder that we played? I'll be honest. I really enjoyed the last session, mostly because Aram got his way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, How did Aram get his okay. way? Okay. So um, as we talked about before, the last time we'd mentioned this, we were going to see. Um, a pirate queen who was uh, the enemy of our enemy, essentially. Yep. Well, little backstory for you guys as far as the... the This pirate queen has been a part of this campaign for pretty much since the beginning. Um, she had a ship docked in the initial starting town that we were in, and the bard in our party at the time, who was the current leader of our, our guild, um, had slept with this pirate queen. Um, siring a child. This is like four and a half years ago. This real is a time. very long time yeah. ago. This is a campaign long um, in the works. Well, consequently, after the bard had died um, due to a, an invisible air elemental assassin? Correct, yes. Okay, good. I did remember that right. Yep. Um, we had come to discover that this bard, and I don't know if the bard even knew it, was the heir to one of the major kingdoms that was at war in, in the setting. For those of you who are familiar with the Forgotten Realms, yeah, this made-up <laughs> kingdom is at war with Cormir. Yep, yep, Malekith. Yeah. Um, we had found out that that this bard Resh was um, the actual heir to the throne of Malekith, yep. and that he was deliberately assassinated by drumroll, please, Victor the Big Bad Evil Guy. Yes, Victor the Big Bad Evil <laughs> Guy. When now, so in the current uh, iteration of our game, of our of our current running campaign, which is high fantasy, you as 
the Brotherhood, reformed, have kind of rendezvoused with this pirate queen once mm. again, essentially, yep. right? So you guys had a feast with her, right? Yep. So, and uh, how did you, like, from Aram's perspective, how did that go? Well, the, 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 we, we'd made contact, and we were having this feast, and she has this little kid running around. Um, a blue dragon shows up in come and then transforms into human form because he wants to pitch to her an alliance with Victor. This this blue dragon works for Victor. The big bad evil guy. The big bad evil guy. Um but what the dragon didn't know was that I knew that um that her child was actually now the last living heir to the throne of Malekith. So basically he offered her Victor's assistance and I offered her a better deal. <laughs> the better deal was I have connections in Cormir, which comes through some of the other characters that we've played in the campaign, but the Brotherhood has connections in Cormir. Um, that I might be able to leverage Cormir's help in basically getting her child onto the throne if she rejected Victor's offer outright. Um, the dragon was none too happy with this. Oh, but of course <laughs> not. As dragons are often to be when they don't get their way. But I, I was personally delighted about the entire thing because... Um, as has been established, Aram is a bit of a manipulator and he's a bit of a, a knowledge hoarder. You know, he, he, he likes, uh, he likes to know things and he likes to use those things to, to get what he wants. And he fits the archetype of a spy master. He does. He does very well. And so for him, he's been keeping this knowledge about the Resh and this kid and the Cormier thing, or not Cormier, the Malaketh thing, kind of in his pocket because he didn't really have a practical use for it until now. And then all of a sudden... We've got her. So what she wants us to do is to assist her in taking down this other pirate lord, who I believe is currently guarding the entrance to um, a hoard of treasure and magical items that belong to her father. She is, she's very big into legacy. Her father's legacy is is somewhere in, in the Nalanthar Isles where we're hanging out, and she wants it because she believes she's entitled to it because it's her it family. It is her legacy. birthright, dang and, it! Oh, it is her birthright. And I, when I found out how big she was into this whole birthright thing, I decided that I was going to mention her child's birthright to her, and which, how which was news to her, which was news to her because she she slept with this bard without realizing. Because I'm not like I, I don't know this, and I don't know that you're going to tell me. It. I don't even know that Resh knew. You don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you don't but know. But what I do know is that after Resh died, we all found out. And I don't know how many of the rest of the party squirreled that information away in their, their gray matter, but I did. Aram most assuredly did. Um, so, yeah, I, I basically used her her desire for, for legacy to uh, offer our help to assist her in getting getting her, her father's legacy and our help and our connections in Cormir to attempt to seat, um, seat her son eventually in the, the throne of Malekith, which is a good thing because the big bad evil guy is actually engineering a war between those two nations for his own ends. If I can put a, you know, uh, an end to that war, that, that, that will also be funny. <laughs> if you guys don't remember the, the story about it, my, my warlock was actually in captivity and tortured for several years by this big bad evil guy, kind of in the middle of our campaign. So uh, sticking it in his cross is on my list of things to do. So basically, um, would you say that that campaign is high fantasy, and yeah, well, why? Well, let's see. We've got Hydras. Half of our cl half of our characters are all into magic. We have fought how many dragons now? Well, what are the stakes of this campaign? Oh yeah. Uh, well, what, what happens if the party fails? I'm not a hundred percent sure what his plan is, but I know it's bad. <laughs> Currently, the big bad evil guy has beef with demons, specifically the demon lord Grazit. Mm -hmm. uh, so, to the point that he has allied with devils, because in the Forgotten Realms, demons and devils hate each other, and there's an eternal thing called the Blood War, where demons and devils are constantly fighting. And basically what's happened is, through one thing or another, he has orchestrated that the Blood War has started to creep into the Prime Material Plane. Yep. And basically you've got the sense that if the party remains inactive and just lets the big bad evil guy do what he wants bad things will happen. I, the world, the entirety of the world will be threatened. Victor Apocalypse. Victor Apocalypse, which is incredibly different to Swords and Sorcery. Swords and Sorcery is honestly how most campaigns start mm -hmm. at the lower level. Yeah, you're just you're handling local problems. You maybe 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 working with a village to deal with the kind of you know, low, like oh, they got a goblin problem or something like that, and then and you you your low level party is 
is cleaning out a, a, a mine that's been infested with some Guga that you know is <laughs> some Guga <laughs> that's, that's uh, given the town fits and preventing them from doing their job. Yeah, it's very low stakes stuff. Yeah, well, low stakes in the grand scheme of mm-hmm. things. Yeah, but powerful. Well, uh, adventurers in general, adventuring is a deadly game, even at the low level, right? Oh yeah. So the the primary difference between high Especially fantasy and swords and sorcery is kind of the stakes of the narrative, whereas high fantasy focuses on uh, a great quest with the possibility of bad things happening to the entire world. Swords and sorcery mostly focuses on uh, personal objectives on a smaller scale. Uh, Warhammer fantasy role playing usually involve well, don't get me wrong, there are, there are things that are more high fantasy mm-hmm. stories but I think if I was going to run a system like that it would focus around the characters and them just trying to survive as adventurers oh yeah <clears throat> but my question to you let's start with swords and sorcery what are your some of your favorite types of swords and sorcery quests and how do you start to build them as a game master um my favorites like I when it comes to sword and sorcery kind of that that low end low level stuff what I like is hijinks Okay. And what I mean by that is that's the like the kind of low level stuff. And we started a little bit of this with our, our Pathfinder campaign before it turned into Pirate Finder, where we kind of had that heist. Oh yeah, yeah. That, you were you were we were working a heist to steal something from a nobleman's house in the rich district. Yeah, of town. We, we we were basically employed by a thieves guild, and the entire that portion of the campaign was very centered around this one city and this thieves guild and this thieves guild boss that wanted to flex his muscle and remind some of the merchants that he was the guy in charge. Now in the grand scheme of the world, what was going on here didn't really make much difference. Let's let's be realistic. We we were we were screwing over a merchant at the behest of a thieves guild leader and stealing things. Basically, we stole something from him that he was going to give to his daughter as a gift on her Sweet 16 party, if I remember right. Yeah, that was Just basically so it. that the leader of the Thieves Guild could show up to the party and present her with the gift as a flex against the old man. Like, that was pretty much what we did. Again, this was very low stakes in the grand scheme of, of the whole world, but it was so much fun. I, I like, in a lot of ways, I, I love the epic feel of the high fantasy but I almost derive more enjoyment from the low-level swords and sorcery stuff. Oh, I, and I think that uh, a lot of people might, actually, because it gets a lot more personal to the uh-huh. characters, right? You can really dial in on all the player characters' desires. Uh, swords and sorcery is really good for if you want to run a more sandbox game. It's mm-hmm. going to kind of naturally uh, be driven towards that. An example, So if we're going to use Lord of the Rings as an example for high fantasy... Uh, the the Elric novels by Michael Moorcock are more swords and sorcery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've only gotten a little bit into it, but I think the uh, a lot of grimdark stuff... Well, actually, that might be a bad thing to say, because uh, the Black Company actually is kind of high fantasy, even though it's grimdark. But my point being that you've got these more personal stories where it's more about the characters, what revolving around them... Uh, local problems the world if the world is not threatened but that almost sometimes makes it more sometimes makes it more interesting mm-hmm. right um, so you've got your your hijinks is, is what you say you like uh, so as a from a game master perspective uh, I how would you go about putting together something like that because for me I start with uh, number one is the patron mm-hmm. you know you've got to find a way to give the quest to the players and entice them. So if you were, Lance, going to run uh, a hijinks like that mechanically and narratively to try and dangle fish hooks in front of the players, what do you do and what do you think about? Well, I, I think, and, and, and this, is, this is probably a bias on my part because of the fact that I started with Shadowrun, and Shadowrun is, a, it's like Shadowrun is almost always just a heist of some almost. persuasion. It's, yeah. It is a group of people being hired by somebody to take something from somebody else or to sneak into a place and destroy something belonging to somebody else to, you know, one party or the other's benefit or detriment. Um, So for me, the the first thing you want to think about is is the kind of the the patron, or as Shadowrun calls it, the the Johnson, the guy that's hiring you, and what their motivations are. Because sometimes that motivation is going to lead to you being stabbed, your players being stabbed, and their characters being stabbed in the back. Yeah, no, no, not your players. Don't Don't stab your players, please. Whatever you do, do not stab your players. (laughs) That's a felony. Don't do it. (laughs) 
but it, it, sometimes, 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 you know, in a situation like that, the characters are a loose end. Oh, yeah. So from the beginning, if you're thinking from that patron's perspective, not only are you thinking about how to get these people to do the thing that you want to do, you're also thinking about how to get rid of them at the end of it all. Or to at least, you know, um, neutralize any possibility that they could become a threat. I also like to design those in a much more sandbox sense of the sense of the word than I, I kind of do. If you're if you're doing a, a high fantasy campaign that's a journey, you don't want to you don't want to uh, railroad them, but you do kind of have to have almost a plot point kind of thing where there really is kind of a uh, it's baked into the recipe, right? Mm-hmm. High fantasy is going to be less sandbox. Uh, swords and sorcery is going to be more baddie of the week kind of. Yeah. But, I mean, like, like when you're talking about a heist situation, since that's the example, I'm going to have the guy that wants it and his motivations, the guy that has it and his motivations, and then I'm going to have the object, and then everything else builds around that. Like, what kind of security measures are going to be in place, what kind of things are going to get in the player's way. But other than that, I'm going to let them figure it out. Okay. Like, I, I want it to be, like, I want them to come up with the plan. And, 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 and that does require a bit of improvis- improvisation on, on your you know part because they're going to come up with ideas that you didn't even think of because you're probably going to have a half dozen different possible routes they could take. That's, because, one, that's be- one of those situations where one of the players comes up with an idea, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, maybe so-and-so is the, the person behind all of this, and you didn't think of that. And, of course, you don't tell your players, but you <laughs> but behind the screen you think... Well, that's, that's a, a really good idea. I, I, I'm going to run with that. I'm, I'm going to admit to it right now. Sometimes my players will float an idea at the table and that you, I hadn't thought of. You, rather than fudging dice, you fudge the story. Yeah, line. I'm like, that is a way better plot line than what I came up with. I like it. And you know what? I think that's a win for everybody because you get a better story as a GM to put together because the player kind of inadvertently assisted you. But on another level, that particular player gets the I told you so at the end. Oh, yeah. They get to tell everybody, see, I told you this was what this guy was up to. I right? knew it! Ha-ha! <laughs> and, they, you know, they, you, again, you don't tell them that because at the end of the day, you didn't plan it that way. They gave you the idea and you, you used it. Yeah, one, one of the players gets the, the parlor scene from an investigative story <laughs> exactly. where the, the detective uh-huh. ropes together all the clues uh-huh. and tells everybody how it is. What you didn't realize is that you actually took their idea and built backwards yeah. from it, but that's okay. Is it, listen, as a GM at the end of the day, if everybody at the table's having a good time, then it doesn't matter how you got there. Mission accomplished. Yeah, that's that's that is like priority one is just making sure everybody has a good time. Everything else is just a vehicle to get you there. So, huh, so with swords and sorcery, we've got more personal stories, or uh, I would say the stakes are smaller, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're going to make high fantasy, it does really help to keep a player's interest by still roping their backstory into it somehow. Oh, yeah. Everybody Ideal- should get their 15 minutes. Ideally, if you're going to play a high fantasy story where all the players are uh, trying to stop the apocalypse, you want the players to be invested. Whether mm-hmm. you have just asked them, hey, you're going to be playing heroes. Make characters that want to save the day or somehow rope uh, rope their character's backstory into the bad guy's efforts and machinations. It's like, for example, let's talk about Aram and his mother. Okay, yeah, that that is a good one. Okay, so um, Aram didn't really know his mother growing up. Aram being Lance's My warlock. warlock in our in our Forgotten Realms campaign. Yep. Um, he didn't really know his mother growing up. Um, his dad was kind of a douche. Um, that that involved a lot of cult things, and part of the reason that he's his dad made him a, unknowingly uh, swear fealty to an outer god. Yeah, that's as, the, as a nine-year-old. That that's the thing that happened. <laughs> Great parenting going on there. That's both high <laughs> fantasy and grimdark. <laughs> it's a, pretty edgy too. I mean, Aram's kind of the edge lord of the group. So, oh yeah, um, but a cooperative edge lord. <laughs> he is. He is. He is a cooperative edge lord. He is. He probably has more loyalty to the group than most of the other players. He just tends to be the guy that kind of pushes the group's motivations from behind the scenes using somewhat questionable means. <laughs> Tell me about Aram's mom. Okay, so Aram's mother, whom he didn't particularly know well, uh, turns out that, that old Victor decided to use her as a... Well, I'm, I think in the backstory she died in childbirth. Yeah, she right? did. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's why I didn't know her. Um, but 
Old Victor decided to, uh, for one reason or another that I still haven't discerned. God, I couldn't even get to the bottom of that. Decided to use her as a death knight? Is that what they're Essentially, called? yeah. yeah. He, he, uh, he resurrected her as a death knight, which... In, in you know in classical D and D, a death knight is created by uh, essentially an anti paladin or like a paladin who's forsaken their oaths uh -huh. and has much regret dying. Uh, someone who basically an oathbreaker mm -hmm. paladin coming back alive as a type of holy unholy revenant yep. kind of thing. But Victor Cromwell, the big bad evil guy, because because you're the game master and because you can make up whatever you want as long <laughs> as you kind of make it. Uh, believable in the setting, he found a ritual that you can use anyone to create uh, a death knight, assuming that they have enough negative emotions tied to their death. See, you know, this is something that, like, I don't... It isn't even occurring to me until now why I haven't invested more time in figuring this out. Because did he resurrect her before his first encounter with Aram and it's just happenstance? Did Victor have some association with the family before Aram slaughtered the entire cult by himself? Um, or is this all, like, Victor making a big dick move because he's mad at Aram about something? Like, Because she's been around for a while, but, I mean, we've been kind of peeing in Victor's Cheerios for a while, too. So, I mean, like, <laughs> I could totally see him, like, being that guy. He's like, oh, you want to be a jerk? All right, well, now I'm going to resurrect your mom. <laughs> Yep, it resurrected the mom. But I, I, I like the drama that I mean. This is kind of a tangent, but I like the drama that it causes because you can tell that she hates having to fight Aram. Oh yeah, like tears of blood, literally, like in one of the encounters that she had when she was trying to fight us. And she was actually avoiding directly attacking him and attacking his friends instead. Oh yeah, the the one sentence point here uh, is. Use your player's backstory to keep them interested in mm -hmm. the, the larger stakes of the world. We've got Lance's character, Aram, who, sure, you know, he he thinks that Victor is a bad guy, but there are tons of, like, heroes mm -hmm. in the Forgotten Realms. Why does it fall on to the Brotherhood to stop him? Well, you, you know what? I mean, I, I know that you threw her in there, but you know what I think the bigger plot point that you threw in there to make sure that Aram is going to go after Victor relentlessly? Why is that? His kid. Oh, yeah. Because uh, Aram had a little tryst with a, an Eladrin when they were in the Feywilds, and now he's got a two-year-old. And um, preserving the entire cosmos against Victor to, to ensure the... The, 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 the prime material. You know, it's, it's kind of that... Uh, that Guardians of the Galaxy situation where it's like, I live in this universe. Yeah, it's exactly it. For Aram, who would probably be a little bit nihilistic on his own, like... For him to understand now that he has a legacy and a child to protect, like, stopping Victor is, that's the only thing he does. Like, at this point, that's the only thing he's concerned about. Even his own life is irrelevant to that because he, he wants to protect his kid. That's a good way to get your players invested in your world, whether you're running uh, low fantasy, high fantasy, swords and sorcery, grim, dark, heist stories, is once they are attached to certain NPCs... You have puppet strings at your command, essentially. Well, and it doesn't hurt that out of everybody in our game group, I'm the only one with an actual kid. Oh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> like, true. I, I, that, that was an easy string to pull for me because I have a son. Yeah, you have actual <laughs> empathy. Yeah, I, you, I understand life, what fatherhood looks like because I'm doing it. All right. You, you are doing fatherhood, so to have a character who is a father, now, you're, yeah. now, you're, now your real-world emotions are easily exactly. and projected onto your character. So that's, that's another thing, you know, know your players. <laughs> you know, if, if, you can, if you can think of an emotional button that would work on the player itself, you can probably push that button on the character and get some response. Yeah, I, I would say that high fantasy, at its base level, when you're making quests is not that difficult as long as you have your players buy-in. Mm -hmm. If the players are invested in stopping the bad guy, all you have to do is give them information about the bad guy's goings-on, and they will go there and do it. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, some characters who are, like, inherently... Like Ulrich, for example. <laughs> Ulrich is good, just by nature. It, you don't even need a hook to get him to stop Victor. He is a paladin. Yeah. If, all you have to do is tell Ulrich, Victor bad. Yeah, Vi and, and, Victor bad. Bad guy over there. Yeah, and, and, and Ulrich will pursue him because it's in Ulrich's nature to stop evil. Yeah. Whereas Aram is a little more morally ambiguous. I mean, when you've grown up with a the whisperings of an eldritch nightmare being 
whispering into your dreams. And, yeah. <laughs> and you have to defend yourself against assassinating ex-cultists and things like that <laughs> as you grow up. And also you've designed your character to be like a, a young Nathan explosion, kind of. <laughs> yeah, he's just not as ripped. He's just easy small. Yeah, yeah he's, he's like the Nathan explosion's younger, skinny cousin. <laughs> that, that's been the... Dan drew my character at one point. Yeah, one he had a very player, Nathan explosion vibe to one his of, One of our players is a pretty sweet artist and that's how the character turned out yeah. on, on in color and i mean it was it was correct <laughs> it was not it was not outside of my uh, view of them but but you know I, I think when it comes to to high fantasy i mean it's, it's not to say that you can't do sword and sorcery and uh with a leveled system but i i think that leveled systems tend to lend themselves better to high fantasy because as you grow and get to the god tier level you become capable of much greater feats. Yeah, and right? I mean, so, like like handling the problems of a single village at level twenty is you, you you can literally fart powerfully enough to kill you know whatever problems <laughs> are are bothering this village. Like Wario and Super Smash. Brothers. Yeah, it's it's to, you know at that point you eventually outlevel the problems of a smaller sword and sorcery campaign. And, I and, think, and it's well, it's kind of a uh, it's kind of inherent if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. Or anything that's, you know, a branch of it, whether it be Pathfinder 2, Pathfinder 1, um, uh, Old School Essentials. Well, I, I guess Old School Essentials is less so, because anything that's in Old School uh, Renaissance is going to be more swords and sorcery, mm -hmm. just because of the lethality level of the system. But anything, specifically D&D and Pathfinder, if you're playing levels 1 through 20, the lower levels are going to lean themselves towards swords and sorcery. Yeah, right? the higher levels are going to lean themselves toward high fantasy. In the Game Master's Guide for... D&D 5th edition, it even level like it tells you what tiers of play are mm -hmm. at what level, right? Yeah. You know, at, at, at tier 3, you might be dealing with uh, regional threats yeah. compared to level 1 where you're dealing with local town threats. But you know, that's the thing is, I like that because, like, every I think that most good hero stories start with humble beginnings. Well, there's there's a thing, um, it, a lot of D&D campaigns uh, end before level ten. Mm -hmm. uh, what you know, and I, it might be because people like swords and sorcery. So they, they, more. they don't want to get too much past that swords and sorcery level. Of yeah, stuff. there's there's hacks for five e. There's versions of other games where people will just uh, stop leveling at like level mm -hmm. seven or eight or something. But you know, there's also expansions that go up to level thirty. Oh yeah, that's like true. Fan made expansions is nothing official, but I mean yeah. they've there've been extensions or expansions done. Mythic levels. Mythic is levels. There you go. Yeah. Called. Where, so, I mean, there, there's obviously a market out there, too, for the the high fantasy stuff. I mean, if you're going up to level 30, because, I mean, level 20 is pretty beefy in both Pathfinder and 5e. You start extending up to level 30 and getting into some of that stuff. It's like, that's that's god-slaying, literal god-slaying to your oh, yeah, absolutely. power. So, with high fantasy, it's easy. You just have to have your players invested in the goal, and then you put objectives in front of them, and they will go through it like, like their quest. They will literally quest and tick off the objectives that have appeared on the top left side of their HUD, right? Like, oh, go to the mountain, slay the dragon, get the horde, proceed to stop the bad guy at the next location. But with swords and sorcery, uh, I would say the way I like to start is with the patron. You know, think back to the way we started this campaign. Um, I, It was, I think, inherent. I think more analytically these days about the way that I GM, whereas before in the early days, I was just kind of winging it. Mm -hmm. And... I think that uh, that's... I look back and I can recognize I did have a good sense of things. Um, for starters, if you are going to have someone who's doling out the quests, I usually try to make that NPC likable. I like to have the person that is uh, kind of the, the the quest giver is someone that the party likes. What was his name? The guy that ran Faerun, or the, the Darian Guildfife. That, Guildfife, that's right, because he, he was... Um... He reminded me of uh, J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons, yeah, he yeah. was a very J.K. Simmons. Dude. Yeah, except instead of instead of uh, telling you to go out and get pictures of Spider-Man, it was to go slay wolves at a nearby cave. And we right? did, we did. And then there was wolves, and then there was the was it a goblin cave that had uh, where we found uh, hobgoblins. Yep, there you go, hobgoblins. Yep, there were, there was a goblin cave, or no, there were wolves harassing farms. You know, you've you've got your stereotypical early D and D. Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of quests, which, you know, that was one of the blessings of our group, is that even though we were all avid tabletop role-playing gamers, none of us in our group, out of 
six people had much D&D experience. That's true. I had zero. Really. So, so, I, <laughs> so at the start, I was able to just use the the what might be considered uh, passe tropes in, <laughs> to people that have been playing since 1977. Hey, stop it. <laughs> I'm not that old. Uh, <laughs> But no, uh, we had never played D&D, so I could just say, hey, there's wolves attacking a farm. There's goblins in a cave. And then mm -hmm. you were able to go do that. Now, if if you're playing with experienced players who are used to that sort of thing, uh, there is the... Uh, just add a twist. You can take existing plot lines, take the... You know, there's goblins in a cave, but maybe when you get there, the goblins are actually just trying to survive, right? Mm -hmm. You know? Um you can just take existing quests and existing tropes. You can actually use the TV Tropes website. Have you ever been there? <laughs> I've never been there. No. Okay, so there's there's a website, uh, TV Tropes, where it's it's just a rabbit hole because it's links on links. They talk about things like, oh, the five-man squad, and then they compare it to, like, the group of badasses. And there's, you know, there's an entire article on unobtainium. It's, it's just a... <laughs> you can go through TV Tropes and talk about uh, the different types of... Uh, storylines and character archetypes and things like that, and then uh, combine them, mesh them together. If you are starting over and you're low level again and you're running uh, what would be considered swords and sorcery and you're not having any fresh ideas, if you're having writer's block and coming up with quests, take existing storylines that you've already done and just put a twist on it. Um, I think uh, one of the examples I've heard before is you're trying to go rescue the princess in the tower, except when you get there, she's the one who's keeping the dragon hostage or something <laughs> like that. You know, you just you just take existing storylines and keep your players guessing. So, I, I this is this is kind of a weird opinion question, but and obviously this is going to depend wildly on the the types of characters that are in your campaign. But what do you think is harder to motivate the players for? Sword and sorcery or high fantasy? I think it's easier to motivate players at the sword and sorcery level. Really? Because I would say so. Um, and here's the thing: we're talking about uh, We're talking about motivations, not the um, not the implementation of goals. So, if your players are not motivated to save the world, how do you get them to do it? Yeah. Right. Whereas at the sword and sorcery level, uh, you don't necessarily because it's more usually sandboxed, you don't need to have them be interested in everything. You have to put like three or four different ideas mm -hmm. and then the party will just latch onto one of them. It's like fishing, right? Okay. You, you throw out, you, you're fishing there in your little rowboat uh, and you've got four fishing poles right there. Mm -hmm. You know, you only and, gotta and, catch and one. You're, you're just waiting <laughs> for one of them to yeah. twitch, right? Uh, so you just kind of look at, because almost always at the low level, players are going to want more money. It doesn't matter the game system mm -hmm. you're playing in. In most <laughs> game systems, they look at their piddly amount of gold or credits and they say, I don't have enough of this. So all you have to do is attach a price tag on a quest board. That's, right? that's fair because once you get up into that high level stuff, we have more money than God. Yeah, you Like our guild has, we have so much money and resources. Like money is never the issue for us anymore. Very rarely, it's in high like yeah. We it's the things that we are fighting are the issue. The yeah. the, the the catastrophic world-ending threats are the issue. I was gonna, and we that's why I think it's really easy because at mm -hmm. low level you just attach a price tag. Oh, a hundred golden dragons to the to the person who can bring me the head of the local hobgoblin boss. That gets players on it like flies on a you know. Yeah. <laughs> See now I, I have a slightly differing differing opinion. On okay, this, let's so. hear your opinion. And and here's here's the why. Okay. I think, and again, this depends on the group and the characters, and to a slight, slight degree the players, too. Um, I think that having a major world-ending threat tends to motivate the players more, because kind of, kind of back to the Guardians of the Galaxy theory, I live here. On the other hand, if you've just got, like, a local crappy village with, like, local crappy village problems, if the players don't want to deal with it, they can just leave. That's true. Like, yeah, you can't leave the whole planet. I mean, I guess you could move to you could move to the Feywilds, I guess, and not deal with the Prime Material Plane. But for the most part, like leaving is harder when you're talking about a world, or even worse, multi-world ending threat. Like I don't know the full end end game for Victor here, but I mean it might involve more than just the Prime Material Plane. So there might not be any place we can go to hide. Whereas you know, if it's just okay, the the local the local governor is paying me to deal with goblins, but 
I don't really want to deal with goblins, so I can just move on to the next village and see what their problems are and see if those problems are better than the ones that are here. That's true. So I, I think it comes down to, is is there much of a difference? And I say there, I say here, yes. There might be a difference between trying to guide the party and trying to motivate the party. Because mm-hmm. when you say that, to me, that feels more like guiding the party. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you're right, at, at the lower level... And I've you guys have done this to me before. I know we have. Where I have <laughs> I have fleshed out a town. Uh, Nyorgar comes to mind uh-huh. in in our first Pathfinder foray, where I had fleshed out an entire town. The Brass Legion had showed up. There was all sorts of different things, and you guys were just like, "Well, let's leave." Yeah, when the, when the the Treant invasion happened, we were like, "Let's just steal a boat, and get the hell out of here." Yeah, I you gotta. <laughs> So it, it, I would say that, yeah, uh, you're right. In, in certain ways, it can be harder to motivate your players to stay. I just, um, I, I feel like there's a lot easier of an out in Sword and Sorcery. Like, in most campaigns, in a Sword and Sorcery campaign where everything's kind of a low level, if the players are like, yeah, I'm not trying to screw with all these, like, because, I mean, our, our Nortgard campaign, basically the city got invaded by the Druids and the Treants and, like, the yeah, whole... the Viragard. The Viragard, yeah. Like, they came and just ravaged the city and, like... This was, like, the second itineration of Bog, the first one having died in Jared's campaign. Oh, yes. And, you know, my first thought was, yeah, but we could just steal a boat and get out of here. But Bog ain't trying to deal with these tree people. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. You guys were... Just a bunch of angry hippies trying to destroy the town. I'm, to... I'm not here for that. No, let's get the heck out of Dodge. <laughs> and we literally stole a ship and just sailed up river with it. And Well, part of your reason to leave was because uh, Jared's character was being chased by the mage hunters. That's true. You're like, well, we don't need to deal with this guy. Well, but we you can know... just flee the town. Well, but because that was the thing, too, is you introduced the mage hunters... And Jared did everything he could to piss this guy off at every turn. And it got to the point where it was... Because the Mage Hunter was pretty content letting Jared live as long as he kept doing what he was told. Right. And Jared did everything in his power to piss this dude off who could clearly kill him. And so we were like, well, we've got we got a druid problem, we got a Mage Hunter problem, and there's a, there's a, a shipyard down that way, and uh, a couple of us are career thieves... Let's just take a ship and just get the hell out of here. So I would say that um, in Sword and Sorcery, uh, it is easier to at least produce uh, produce produce hooks. Uh-huh. Just say no. That, that's fair. You can you can throw a lot of things at players and give them something to do. But you're right. It is much more unpredictable. Yeah. You can more reliably steer the group. Now that's not necessarily. It's not railroading, because you still have to put things in front of the players mm. for them to chase. But I would say that, yeah, I think I think in a sense you are much... Uh, you are absolutely correct uh, from your point of view, because now that you bring that up, yeah, at the high level of play, when I create hooks, I almost reliably... Like, I can mm-hmm. expect you guys to act. Well, but, I can almost predict how most situations mm-hmm. will turn well, out, that, whereas in Swords and Sorcery, i got to be more improv-ready. Because in the high fantasy, you're like, if you guys don't do something about this, the world's going to end. Yeah. So you can go back and lay around in your hamlet and, you know, drink until you're stupid, but at the end of the day, if you do nothing, you're still going to die. You know, with this chocolate ale, I might <laughs> drink until I'm stupid. <laughs> Uh, I think so, we found his favorite beer on the show so far. So far, I would say this is a pretty good. I mean, it's don't be wrong, it's heavy. You're going to feel pretty full if you chug a bunch of these. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's really awesome, this chocolate ale. Uh, okay, so in summation, uh, when you're making and forming quests, number one thing, try and buy into the player backstories. If your players, you, you know... Most of the time, even if it's a couple notes, um, like for example, we're doing our test for our system tomorrow, yep. and all you all you need to know about my guy is that he's kind of got a rivalry with his older brother that he's going to try to earn more glory from the gods. Yep, that's enough of a hook that you can work with that. Yep. Uh, when your players are making their backstories, make sure you get something out of their backstory that you can use as a plot hook. And I, I would add that that is doubly important when you're talking about sword and sorcery. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Be, because, be, because... Because it focuses more those, on the personal those, level. Those low-level motivations are going to be the things that are going to draw... Even if you're doing, like, like a campaign that is going to be high fantasy but starts out in sword and sorcery, you got to give these guys something to work with that their characters are going to care about. And it can't always be... I mean, okay, if you've got a lawful good paladin... And there is a problem with goblin raids. It's a pretty safe bet the, the the lawful good paladin is going to be motivated to stop them. Oh yeah. On the other hand, if you have a, a chaotic neutral rogue, 
who's really just in it for profit, then you know you, you better make sure you're offering enough money to get his attention. Oh yeah. You know, there, there's got to be some motivation in there. Now, it, once you move up into that higher level stuff, where if you guys don't do this, the world comes to an end. Well, that, that's motivation in and of itself. Yeah, that's true. And don't forget, uh, game masters who are present, that if uh, you are running and you are prepping for something that is maybe considered a tired trope or you've done it before, take the classic trope and put a spin on it. Add a little spice. Yeah, maybe maybe that lawful good paladin is going to do something about those goblins, but those goblins are being forced to do violent things by a different uh, overlord that has kind of blackmailed them into something. Why have they been blackmailed? I don't know. That's for you to figure out. It's your game. Own it. That's right. Add a little sriracha. <laughs> Add a little sriracha. To <laughs> Add a little sriracha to your if you, game. If you get a little tired trope, add a little sriracha to that thing. Put a, put, <laughs> You're not put, wrong. You can kind of add sriracha you, to whatever. You can put right? sriracha on anything. I mean, just, I know. Oh, well, I'm tired of this meal. Well, just add sriracha. It's easy. All right. So, uh, don't forget to take everything we've said into account, uh, or maybe you hate everything we've said. You know, that's you, your opinion, you man. Can, you can tell us about it in the comments or emails. That's right. <laughs> tell us about it in the comments or emails. Uh, Nero is saying that it is last call. Uh, so I, on the closing note, I'm going to get another one of these beers, these chocolate ales. But Delicious. if you want to reach out to us, you can find us uh, on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is the Record Button Production Group. You can also find the Record Button Production Group on YouTube. You can send that link to your buddies so they can listen to both this show. They can listen to our sister shows, uh, Why Did I Write This and Active Wasteland Radio, which is a Fallout theme. Yes, Fallout, as in, like, you know, the bombs dropped Fallout. Uh, a, a, a radio drama set in that universe. Uh, those can be found there. We can also be listened to on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, uh, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, anything like that. If you want to reach out to us, and I'm going to say this again, if you want to reach out to us, that is, you want to provide questions or feedback, you may do so. We will check the email at gmspeakeasyofficial at gmail.com. He's going to keep doing that until gonna, you send us emails. I'm going to so. do it. It's going to get more <laughs> annoying until you keep sending me more emails and shut my ass up. So please email us more questions and things you'd like us to talk about. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you have enjoyed your time here at the Game Master Speakeasy, staying cozy near the ever-burning ever hearth. And uh, I've been Cody. And I'm Lance. Join us again next time. Please get home safe. <laughs>